Please join me in the prayer for elimination. Let us pray. Holy God, reveal your presence to us this day as we journey this path with your Son. Through all of life's trials and tribulations, your word sustains us for the journey ahead. Send your spirit upon us that we might listen, discern, and take heart. Amen. Our scripture today comes from Psalm 51. Hear these words. Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion. Wash me completely clean of my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Because I know my wrongdoings, my sin is always right in front of me. I've sinned against you, you alone. I've committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict, completely correct when you issue your judgment. Yes, I was born in guilt, in sin, from the moment my mother conceived me. And yes, you want truth in the most hidden places. You teach me wisdom in the most secret space. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crushed rejoice once more. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all my guilty deeds. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside me. Please don't throw me out of your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will come back to you. Deliver me from violence, God, God of my salvation, so that my tongue can sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise. You don't want sacrifices. If I give an entirely burnt offering, you wouldn't be pleased. A broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise a heart, God, that is broken and crushed. Do good things for Zion by your favor. Rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Then you will again want sacrifices of righteousness, entirely burned offerings and complete offerings. Then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Psalm 51, from broken to whole. Yeah, um, it's interesting, uh, the language of Psalm 51. Uh, for some of you who were uh, raised maybe in a, a Catholic or Episcopalian um, denomination, uh, or, or even an evangelical faith, you find in those words the, the judgment, the uh, evil, the uh, penance and punishment. You know, oftentimes in culture we think of uh, penance and of God as um, a connection with our punishment for doing wrong. 
But I think when we delve deeper into Psalm 51, we find uh, a, a more powerful narrative than just wrong and right. I think Psalm 51 is really about our mistakes and how do we handle them. Now, I'm willing to say that some mistakes are embarrassing. <laughs> it's a shame there's no autocorrect for tattoos. And some mistakes are expensive. The license plate is where you want to read. Whoopsie. Now, some mistakes are um, embarrassing, some mistakes are expensive, <clears throat> but those are not the ones we're most concerned about. The ones we're most concerned about are those um, mistakes that change the landscape around us, that endanger our family, and that may even endanger our own lives. You know, this is a scene from the um, evacuation of the students from the shooting in Florida this week. I mean, to be honest, the, the, the mistakes that we are worried about are not the ones that embarrass us or the ones that cost us a couple thousand dollars. They're the ones that change the landscape of our community, endanger those whom we love, and put our own lives at risk. Psalm, Psalm 51 is really about those particular mistakes. Tradition says that King David wrote Psalm 51 Shortly after, the prophet Nathan came to the palace and told David, you are the one, you are the one who has sinned against God by committing adultery with Bathsheba, by then trying to cover it up, by murdering Uriah, her husband, and now Bathsheba carries your baby. Nathan's language to David was harsh. And David's response, now when preachers say tradition says, that means the scholars disagree and we've just decided on our own all the way, right? And I'd be willing to say that if King David did not write Psalm 51, and if King David did not pray Psalm 51 after Nathan left his room, he should have. He should have. What do you think about what David has done? Um, you know, um, the story of uh, David and Bathsheba starts with um, in the spring when kings go out to war. Well, the undertext there is David decided to have a pajama day. He didn't go out with the men to the war. He stayed at home. And as he looked out from the palace, he saw Bathsheba bathing there on the roof of her uh, building. This is not a, a horrible thing to do. This was how things happened. Bathsheba wasn't looking for it. This wasn't any enticement or entrapment. And King David sends for Bathsheba because of her beauty. Now, <clears throat> if you're the king and you say, you're coming here, you, you come here, or you die, because that was the power of the king. And after uh, King David had laid with Bathsheba, he realized the great sin that he had committed, and instead of owning up to it and doing penance, he tried to cover it up. And so he told Uriah's commander, um, after trying to convince Uriah when he was home on furlough that he should, um, that, we'll talk about that sometime when the children aren't present, um, after Uriah refused, he told Uriah's commander to surge forward in the battle and then pull back in such a way that Uriah might be kept out in front of the battle line 
and might die. And so he planned Uriah's murder. You see, King David, over the course of two days, committed more than half, or violated more than half of the Ten Commandments. I mean, I, you know, a little humor here. I, there, you know, there are two kinds of games. There are games like football, where the highest score wins. There are games like golf, where the low score wins. I'm pretty sure Ten Commandments is a golf, not a football. And King David's not doing so well. We look at the language of Psalm 51. We pay attention to the first couple of verses that talk about my sin and how I have been evil and how I have gone against your ways. Notice that in Psalm 51, this is not a buttering up of God. This is admitting I did it, right? You've never buttered up your parents before a punishment, right? I mean, never, you know, I mean, I, <clears throat> I can't say I've actually done this, but, you know, I'm so sorry, Mom, that I broke the vase. I know it was expensive. But, you know, now you have more room on the bookshelf to put a picture of your favorite child, me. It didn't work so well. And, you know, it's interesting about how we think about um, God and about our sins is that we tend to think of God uh, as a judge, as a vindictive, capricious, whimsical judge that's just waiting to see us mess up so they can zap us, you know, like a kid might use a magnifying glass to burn ants. I've never done that, right? We think of that. But Psalm 51 first admits the wrongdoing. And you get this sense that the psalmist says, I deserve whatever you give me. I did the wrong. But quickly, around verse 10 uh, through verse 16, you get this, this beautiful language of God's merciful love, of his steadfast love, of his abundant mercy. When we look at the Hebrew, behind the, uh, the Hebrew word behind abundant mercy, what we get is a, a word that really means womb. And, and so the connotation here of abundant mercy from the Hebrew is that this kind of love is, is maternal love. It is the, the warmth and love of surrounding by the womb. This is not the vindictive judge that we imagined would be true. This is the God who loves and cares. Have you ever taken a moment to think about what your view of God is? You know, Christianity's really kind of been built around that Jewish impression that you should never paint a picture of God, that if you could write the name of God correctly or if you could depict God correctly, that it would be a blasphemous event, that you might even invite the return of God at that moment. And so we live in a religion that does not depict God. And so how do you depict God in your head? Some people over the course of my ministry have described that God looks like a high-powered New York attorney uh, rushing from place to place with much power and much affluence and little time for people like you and me. Some people describe their view of God as uh, a very old man in, um, in coveralls with work boots who's fallen asleep in the cool of the summer day on a porch in a rocking chair somewhere on the back roads of Kentucky. You know, in, in God's heyday, God was pretty wonderful, but now he pretty much sleeps and doesn't hear us. What is your view of God? 
Psalm 51 creates a view of God that is neither the powerful attorney who has no time for us, nor the God of yesteryear who once was great but now falls asleep. What we get in Psalm 51 is a picture of God, a God that cannot but be gracious, merciful, and forgiving. And to find evidence of that, all we have to do is look um, at the words that are used to describe uh, God. Uh, one particular word that I love in Psalm 51, you've heard it three or four times already, and Myra did a wonderful job with the children's moment talking about it. It's created me a clean heart, O God. That's probably the catchphrase, the key word for this psalm. If you're trying to remember kind of what's a takeaway from today, it's the prayer created me, O Lord, a clean heart. Now the Hebrew behind that use of create is a particular word that is only used when uh, God is acting. You see, it's not about you and me creating what we want to. It's not about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's not about us doing more, working harder, striving and overachieving. But creating me a clean heart has everything to do with the actions of God in our lives. The image that works well for me around that is the potter and the clay. You know, it's not just that um, God kind of orders a clean heart up for us, ships it by way of Amazon, but rather he gets his hands dirty. God gets in the mix. God pulls the clay up out of the ground and fashions into it a heart, a clean heart, a new heart. Not necessarily the ease of flipping the page over and showing the clean side of the heart, but a clean heart for us. This is powerful. I, if you've ever had the opportunity to watch a, a potter throw clay, it is a very earthy, very dirty, very strange experience. And what's interesting is if you're a novice at throwing pottery, you throw that pottery onto the spinning wheel, and, and if it's not centered just right, it begins to wobble. And if you continue to try to work it, it wobbles more. And if you continue to try to work it, it will break apart and splatter all over the place. It's almost like in our lives, we decide we're going to make our own heart. We're the novice potter. We're the one trying to be creative, but we are no longer, no, nowhere close to being divine. We are mortal in the worst ways. And so our mistakes are embarrassing. That's the good part. Our mistakes can be costly, but the worst mistakes that we make are the ones that transform the landscape of our community, endanger the ones we love, and may even call upon our own lives. And so God could be capricious, whimsical, and punish us. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, at my house, um, when I was a kid, if you did something wrong and dad was out of town, you really didn't want mom to say, you want to say it with me? Wait until your father gets home. Woo! My goodness, right? I mean, you really wanted mom to, like, you know, feel all of her power and authority and punish you right then because her punishments were so much less than dad's punishments were, right? And boy, howdy, if she said, wait until your father gets home. It was terrifying waiting, whether it was a day or a week, until dad came home. What is it like for us to change our view of God? That God is not the vindictive, judgmental father, but quite likely with the abundant love that the Hebrew word says, that God is a mother hen. 
gathering us close and loving us. We're uh, using this uh, series of uh, services to tie the Psalms to Jesus' life. And I would love to be able to quote a piece of scripture where uh, Psalm 51 is in Jesus' uh, words, right there in the gospel, written in red. But there's not a place. And I'm willing to say that the history of the Psalms is that they were the hymn book and prayer book for the Hebrew people from deliverance from Pharaoh all the way through the rebuilding of the walls for uh, Nehemiah and for the prophecies of Isaiah. And so I'd be willing to say that if the disciples called Jesus a rabbi, that he had these Psalms memorized. And so I wonder, as Jesus is being baptized, coming up out of the water, as the dove comes down from heaven, as he hears the voice that says, this is my son, my beloved, listen to him. Could it be possible that Psalm 51 is in his heart and in his mind. Now, I want you to put on your theologian's cap for the moment. Just go ahead, I'm gonna make you tenured in whatever, United Methodist University, there we go. Um, and think with me for a moment, why in the world does Jesus have to be baptized? We talk about baptism as being washed uh, and cleansed of our sin. We, we, we talk about uh, baptism as dying to sin and rising with new life. I mean, if I read and listened to Charlie Brown and the Peanuts Christmas special, this is not a concern of Jesus. He's born sin-free. So why be baptized? Jesus is baptized because every good leader knows you don't ask your followers to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. Every good parent knows that you can't ask the kid to do the chores unless you model the chores for themselves. Everyone knows that a role model, right? Uh, what is it? I, I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. And so Jesus says, I don't have to, but let me show you the road for new beginnings. Let me show you the road from broken to whole. Let me live out what it means to say, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Friends, I want to encourage you that there is no mistake that can separate us from God. I, I know, we, we like to rank order our sins. We like to say that, you know, mine's not so bad, but woohoo, have you seen his or hers? It's not an issue of a competition. It's golf, not football. And, and that if we think that our sins have separated us so finally from God, then we have not paid attention to the narrative, Jesus, narrative of Jesus and the price that he pays on the cross and the new life that comes in resurrection. And that whole journey, right? Why do we start with penitential psalms uh, on the first week of Lent? It's not because it's a crowd pleaser, right? <laughs> we start with penitential psalms because that's the beginning of the Christian journey. It's the place where we admit, I'm not able to do this on my own, Lord. So create in me a clean heart so that I might begin the journey closer to your heart. So that together I might learn and grow and become who you've intended me to be. And the best way to know if God is creating a new heart in you is can you feel the potter's hands dirty with the clay, gripping your heart, molding and forming it? Friends, my hope for you is that Psalm 51 might be your prayer 
might be your prayer this week. If you don't have time for all 19 verses, I get it. That's, that's a big chunk of change. What if you just took, created me a clean heart, oh God, cast me not away from your presence. Do not keep your Holy Spirit from me. You want to know the road back from broken to whole. It starts with a psalm. May we live the psalms this week the way Jesus did. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.